You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. An update on cyber operations in the hybrid war, NPM compromise updates, free decryptors for AstraLocker and Yashma ransomware, Johannes Ulrich from SANS on attacks against perimeter security devices. Our guest is Sonali Shah from Invicti Security with a look at DevSecOps anxiety. And who's the villain who hijacked the Instagram account of Disneyland? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 8th, 2022. Operational pause or not, Russia's hybrid war seems to be as far from any quick resolution as ever. Russia's President Putin said yesterday during a meeting with senior leaders of the Duma that he had no intention of backing down from his own maximalist goals and that Ukraine's only option was to accede to all of Russia's demands. And any Ukrainian hope of battlefield victory is a phantasm because Russia's been pulling its punches so far. He said, everyone should know that, by and large, we haven't started anything yet in earnest. IBM researchers recently discovered that the TrickBot gang has been active against Ukrainian targets since Russia's war began, and that it's been acting directly in the Russian interest. So TrickBot and similar gangs have been acting as privateers under state direction. Since TrickBot cut its criminal teeth on financial crime, especially banking Trojans, the financial sector ought to be on particular alert for any spillover from Russian privateering, SC Magazine speaks with various industry experts who advise financial institutions to keep their shields up. Researchers at Reversing Labs detailed their discovery of a widespread supply chain attack against the NPM repository earlier this week, publishing an update on Wednesday. Though the exact scope of the attack wasn't initially clear, researchers say the packages are potentially used by thousands of mobile and desktop applications and websites and in one instance, a malicious package had been downloaded over 17,000 times. Reversing Labs called the campaign Icon Burst. Their conclusion is that Icon Burst represents a major software supply chain attack involving more than two dozen NPM modules used by thousands of downstream applications, as indicated by the package download counts. Application developers should be particularly alert to the problem which appears to represent an organized cooperative criminal effort. Analysis of the modules reveals evidence of coordination 
with malicious modules traceable to a small number of NPM publishers and consistent patterns in supporting infrastructure such as exfiltration domains. Reversing Labs says Icon Burst marks a significant escalation in software supply chain attacks. The firm communicated its findings to the NPM security team on July 1st of 2022. Developers, Reversing Labs says, should assess their own exposure to the threat, and the researchers have provided information that should assist them in doing so. There's been another attack on the NPM supply chain, this one described by researchers at Checkmarks. They say, Checkmarks SCS team detected over 1,200 NPM packages released to the registry by over 1,000 different user accounts. This was done using automation, which include the ability to bypass NPM 2FA challenge. The operators, whom the researchers call CuteBoy, were using what Checkmarks calls a fake identity as a service provider. They say, Looking at the domains with which CuteBoy is creating NPM users, we can deduce that they are using Mail.tm, a free service providing disposable email addresses with REST API, enabling programs to open disposable mailboxes and read the received emails sent to them with a simple API call. This way, CuteBoy can easily defeat NPM 2FA challenge when creating a user account. So far, the operation seems to represent an initial experimental phase of a larger campaign. The researchers say this cluster of packages seems to be a part of an attacker experimenting at this point. The researchers think that CuteBoy is preparing a large-scale cryptojacking campaign using XM rig derivatives. Checkmarks has also released information to help users identify the malicious activity. They also warn that further exploitation of NPM can be expected. They say, CuteBoy is the second attack group seen this year using automation to launch large-scale attacks on NPM. We expect we will continue to see more of these attacks as the barrier to launch them is getting lower. CISA, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, released three industrial control system advisories yesterday. Bravo to MSysoft. The company has released free decryptors for the AstraLocker and Yamsha ransomware strains, Bleeping Computer reports. MSysoft tweeted, The AstraLocker decryptor is for the Babic-based one using .astra or .babic extension, and they released a total of eight keys. The Yashma decryptor is for the Chaos-based one using .astralocker or a random extension, and they released a total of three keys. Bleeping Computer points out that Astra Locker, itself derived from Babak Locker, has gained a reputation for being both buggy and effective. The operators of Astra Locker earlier this week released some decryptors as they announced they were exiting the ransomware business, saying that they had decided to turn to crypto mining. They were probably kidding about getting into coin mining, not only did they close their announcement with an LOL, but there's also some reason to think they were feeling the approach of law enforcement. The Wall Street Journal reports that the Instagram account of Disneyland Resort was briefly hijacked yesterday morning by someone who identified himself as David Dew and proclaimed himself a super hacker. Mr. Dew acted with apparently trivial motives— he had some sort of beef with someone called Jerome, according to the independent fan site The Disney Blog, 
and he wanted to air that through his hack. He was also disgruntled about some Disney employees, saying he was here to bring revenge upon Disneyland. Mr. Dew posted a selfie and said he was tired of all these Disney employees mocking me. The journal says the posts were both profane and racist, and it quotes a Disney representative as saying, We worked quickly to remove the reprehensible content, secure our accounts, and our security teams are conducting an investigation. We received comments from Arctic Wolf's VP of Strategy, Ian McShane, who thinks the incident shows that cybercriminals are often motivated by concerns that are neither monetary nor political. He wrote, Many are keen to just inflict reputational damage. High-traffic, high-follower accounts will always be a target for threat actors, both sophisticated and the occasional rogue low-level amateur. It's not yet known how David Dew gained access to the accounts, but McShane noted that compromises of this nature are almost certainly rooted in a phishing or credential-stuffing incident. And of course, the motivation of the attacker needn't be serious or even rational. Just ask Mr. Dew wherever he may be. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. If you feel as though you and your colleagues in cybersecurity are stretched thin, being asked to do more with less, and facing increased anxiety as a result, 
you're not alone. In a recent report published by Invicti Security, focusing on DevSecOps professionals, they found the high expectations placed on security pros sometimes leads to diminishing returns. Sonali Shah is Chief Product Officer at Invicti Security. This is a very stressful job, right? So, you know, 39% of data breaches stem from attacks on web applications. So it's no surprise that that is more and more uh, of a focus for enterprises. And it's, you know, often it's on-the-job training for, for developers. So, you know, some of the key things that we found is on average, people were spending four hours a day addressing security issues. That's a lot of time. On top of that time, developers also have to release code based on internal timelines, right? So you can imagine the stress this puts on it releases, it, it ends up causing overtime. Um, you know, we had 50% of the respondents say they logged in over weekends or on their own time in the evening. Uh, to work on security-related issues. One in three blew off, you know, date night or a night out with friends and in the time of COVID when it's, I think, hard enough to find dates. Like, this is particularly relevant. Um, and then even, you know, once, even after they've spent all the hours remediating issues, there's that anxiety of the next one. So we found 81% of professionals, they're likely to, they're already feeling anxious about the next vulnerability even just after they finished remediating the last one. Is there a sense uh, for the ways in which this is affecting their ability to put out the quality work that is expected of them? Absolutely, it is. It is. Um, You know, we found often developers are releasing insecure code. And it's not because they want to. It's because there's pressure to release code. It's because maybe they don't have the training to do so. So that is absolutely happening. And we witness it every day when you hear about the the breaches. Uh, But what's really interesting is that they, in general, are very proud of their work. So 94% of the respondents said that digital transformation and the move to a remote work model in the recent years has made their role more valuable and rewarding. 88% said they're proud to put cybersecurity professional on a dating profile. And, you know, majority of them felt like they're saving their companies over a million dollars a year by the work they're doing to prevent data breaches. So, you know, it's, it's frustrating, it's draining, but they're proud of the work they're doing. What is the, the sense of the relationship they have with their companies? In, in other words, do they feel as though the companies are, are doing their best to support them, or, or is there a gap there? There is a gap, and I see that every day when I'm talking to our customers. Um, I think, you know, the, the gap is not in acknowledgement, right? So security teams know that development teams are overworked. They know that they often don't have enough people, that often they don't have the skills, right? So if you go to, you know, go to university and study uh, coding, you're often you'll go through four years and never take a class on how to securely build code. So there's absolutely um, agreement and acknowledgement that this is a difficult job to do. And in some cases, companies are able to support their developers so they feel like it's a journey they're taking together. In other cases, it causes friction and you know you see turnover. It's it's a relatively strong job market. And so what we've seen is that companies that 
help their developers and help security professionals to weave security into their daily lives, that really helps retain people and improve job satisfaction. I see the benefits of, uh, of having automation help lift some of the workload off, off of these people. What about the, the purely human side of it? You know, that, that you're checking in on folks, making sure that they're, you know, the people are, are hanging in there and doing the best they can. It, seems, it strikes me that particularly as so many of us have moved to remote work, uh, that's as important as ever. You're absolutely right. It, it's moving from, you know, just development to sort of DevSecOps practices is as much a technology change as it is a culture change, right? So the, the automation, integrating all of your products together, making sure you've got accuracy, that's the technology part. The people part of it is making sure people have the resources. Developers and security teams have the resources they need. So, you know, that's part of what I was just talking about, the, the Security Champions program. So if developers mm. know that they've got somebody, one of their own often that they can go to for help, that is, that's hugely beneficial. Somebody that is, you know, working on their time zone, speaks their language. You know, when it's interesting, one of the customers I recently spoke to said that they, you know, they launched a Security Champions program earlier this year, and they were surprised at how many developers wanted to be a part of it. And partially that's because, you know, having the word security anywhere on your resume is a huge plus because developers are, they understand they need to learn about security and they want to learn about security. So I think having those um, support mechanisms is hugely helpful. The other thing actually that I've seen very rarely, but I have seen it be very beneficial is to build security into quarterly business objectives. So instead of just saying, all right, the, the you know, quarterly objective for the you know, product engineering is to release this feature on time, if you have in there, it's release it as expected on time and with no high severity vulnerabilities, right? You build it right into there. So it just becomes part of the objectives and then you recognize it, you call it out. So you're, you're rewarding people not just for delivering a new feature, but delivering it with high quality, which means it does what it's supposed to do, and it, and it is uh, secure. That's Sonali Shah from Invicti Security. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, always great to welcome you back to the show. Uh, you know, I, I think as we've made our way through the pandemic and there's been this massive uh, move to folks working off-site, there's this notion that perimeter security is a thing of the past. But you want to make the point today, well, maybe not so fast. Correct. And particular devices that we're using uh, to implement uh, those security controls like load balancers, firewalls, uh, various proxy systems or such that we are using. Probably one of the lines that I repeat the most is, well, you know, 
why is this connected to the internet in the first place? And that usually refers to not just nuclear power plants and elevators and door controls, but also things like admin interfaces for these perimeter security devices. So you spend a lot of money uh, buying a device like this, protecting your users from attacks, but then you're opening up the management interface that's used to control that device to the world, and sadly, that's then being exploited. And is, I mean, that primarily a matter of convenience for the users to be able to reconfigure things and not have to be you know, on-premises to do so? Uh, yeah, that's often the reason uh, because, uh, you know, if it is your VPN concentrate that you're configuring here, you don't want to have to connect to the VPN first because if you're messing up with your configuration, uh, then you can't connect to the VPN anymore. And then, you know, you have to get pants and uh, drive to the office and all of that stuff uh, to uh, to actually uh, get this thing working again. I think that's part of it. Of course, you could still filter by IP address. Another part is once you deploy them in the cloud, it's really hard to drive to the cloud and uh, or restart things. Uh, so uh, that's uh, where this sometimes happens. And then also, I think uh, the perception that, hey, this is an expensive device that I purchased. The vendor probably took some care here. As they say, don't look behind the curtain. Uh, you often find a <laughs> scaffolding of Perl and PHP code here uh, in your you know, tens of thousand dollar devices that probably hasn't been touched in the last 10 years. And we have seen like, you know, just the last month, uh, F5's big IP appliance again. Uh, they sort of have sort of an annual schedule where they come up with a critical unauthenticated remote control, remote code execution vulnerability. Yet again, uh, had one. It took two days for a proof of concept to be released. Then, as I sort of put it, it took like one week from zero day to Mirai. So in the end, the Mirai bot just took the vulnerability. And of course, once it at that, it's at that point, you can assume every exposed device out there has been probably exploited multiple times. Hmm. So what are your recommendations then? Definitely secure those admin interfaces. Secure devices are not inherently secure. It's sad, but that's just a matter of fact. So defense in depth. Yes, you know, uh, limiting access to the admin interface to a couple of IP addresses, attackers can bypass that, but it'll maybe take them another week to do that. So you have that first week to actually apply patches and then learn how to patch these devices. It's not always easy to patch these uh, devices. Learn how to do it. Do it regularly. Don't just do it uh, when there's an emergency out there. Because the other problem is vendors release patches like on a monthly basis or whatever. You may ignore them because they don't really fix any big security issues. And last time you applied a patch, it caused some problem. But the issue is if you're waiting too long, then the probability of a problem becomes larger and larger. And also usually the impact of that problem becomes larger and larger because now you have not just one problem, you have like 12 problems because mm -hmm. you have to deal with every single patch's problem. So really updating regularly, learning how to patch, having some procedure around it. So you can sort of press that button kind of uh, when an emergency patch comes around to apply the patch. You don't really have to make it a big deal and spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. All right. Well, good advice as always. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us.
And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Alden Wallstrom from Mandian's Information Operations Team. We're discussing their comprehensive overview and analysis of the various information operation activities they've seen while responding to the Russian invasion. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karf, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Harold Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. We'll be right back.